The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. If you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. As you're turning there, children ages 4 and 5 can be dismissed over to that side of the sanctuary, your right, my left. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I will pick back up with our sermon series. Uh, It's been about three weeks since I have actually been in this pulpit, since my last sermon. Three weeks from today, uh, going backwards, uh, I stood here and started the last sermon I preached. So I'm itching to preach, uh, which is good for me and maybe bad for you. Um, But uh, we were on vacation, went down to the beach, and I tried to eat my weight in shrimp and hush puppies and uh, came back six pounds heavier, you know? (laughs) And that's no exaggeration. I put on six pounds. I'll work it off uh, in, the, in the weeks to come. But uh, this text this morning, um, we have to be careful because we come to a text like this that talks about the Lord's Supper. We come to a text that's sandwiched in the middle of our section today is a passage that you've heard if you've been in or around church probably dozens if not hundreds of times. And we come to a passage like this, and it's very easy just to think we've heard it, we've done that, and to not hear anything new in it. But we're going to look at it without doing the Lord's Supper today, and we're going to look at it in its full context with the section before and the section afterwards and see what's really going on in this church. You see, in this church, they didn't exactly look like what they were supposed to look like. Have you ever had anybody say to you, you know, you look just like... Fill in the blank. I had somebody tell me one time that uh, they thought I looked like Nicolas Cage. I have no idea where that came from, okay? Um, I've, I don't know. I don't see it at all. But uh, maybe you've had that happen to you where someone has said, you know, you look just like. In fact, we've got some celebrity lookalikes in our congregation. Uh, have you all ever noticed that Phil Waddell back there looks like Chevy Chase? I mean, if you just look at him, I mean, you can just see him in Christmas vacation, right? <laughs> Trekking out through the snow. I'm telling you, it's him. Any, any Duck Dynasty fans in the room? Okay, not a lookalike, but have y'all ever noticed that Kevin Layton sounds just like Godwin? Think about it. Next time, next time you watch Duck Dynasty and you hear Godwin, it's going to be Kevin Layton, and you won't be able to get it out of your head. Well, the church here in Corinth looked a lot like, not Christ, but they looked like the culture around them. See, every church should look like Christ. Every church should, should resemble and look like God amid a lot of worldliness. But instead, we see the church here looking, instead of like Christ, looking more like the culture around them. And that's what's led to the naming of this entire series, that, that we are reflections, and that we're to be a living reflection of the living God. But instead, the church here in Corinth was a living reflection of a dead culture. And so today, I want us to look at this with some new eyes. I want to give you a little bit of context and background before we look into this so that you know what's going to happen. As we read this passage, you're going to hear at least five different times the the two little words together come together. When you come together, when you come together, 
repeatedly. So this is talking about, it's addressed to the church, but not necessarily to the universal church, but this is addressed specifically to a local church because how could the universal church come together? In order for them to come together, they have to have a local context, just like we can't expect to come together with believers in China or Africa or in Russia or wherever the case may be. We can't come together with them. We may all gather in our context, but we come together with the faith family at Abner Creek. And so this is a a passage that's addressed to a local congregation there in Corinth. And Paul is writing here to them because he's concerned about what's going on. In that Roman Corinthian society, they had a a practice in that day where they would have these elaborate dinner parties. And and the unsaved in in that social context would 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 bring together people from their community but they wouldn't bring really just anybody but they would bring people that were of their same social structure or social status and they would bring some that are lower than them so that they could indeed show themselves to be superior to others this went on all throughout the culture uh, and and the, these believers in the Corinthian church, many of them had, not many of them, some of them had been saved out of this, and they, were, they came out of a wealthy background. Paul writes in the first part of this book that not many of you were noble, not many of you were wise, not many of you were much of anything. But there were some that, according to the worldly standards of the day, were elite, were cream of the crop. Not, that's not what God chose them. God chose them in spite of that. But there were a few, and they, had, they were carrying this over. And some, what they were doing was they were looking at the, this Roman practice of having these dinner parties, and they were looking at the command of Jesus Christ to, to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, to have this meal together in remembrance of Christ, and they were saying, we could combine these two. And what was going on here was they were having these dinners before or even during the Lord's Supper when they gathered together. The, the uh, a wealthy church member would invite the church to his home or to her home, and they would bring in the church members, but only the elite, only the dignitaries is what they would call themselves, would be invited to sit in the triclinium or into the dining room. The rest were forced to sit in the atrium in the courtyard because there wasn't enough room to bring them in. So the, the homeowner would invite who he wanted to sit in the dining room. Well, it, this wasn't exactly like um, the, the host providing the meal and all. In fact, in fact, what he would do is he would simply open his home and they were responsible to bring their own food, their own meal in. What we would picture this as would be a potluck. We would do this where we would all say, okay, next Sunday, uh, this is not really happening, so don't bring food, but we would say, we're, we're going to have a potluck, everybody bring food, we'll put it all on a big common table, and we'll say a blessing, and then everyone will go through and, and you know, get, get food. That's not what was happening. The food they brought was not put on a common table. They would bring their own picnic basket. Instead of sharing, they would eat what they brought themselves. And so here you had a separation of members of the church, based on how they were viewed in society, sitting at special places, and they would bring their own food, and they would eat what they brought, and they would try to outdo one another by bringing these really nice portions of food. But the issue was, those that were not sitting in the triclinium, that were out in the atrium, some of them had nothing. Some of them were 
extremely poor. And they had taken something that was meant to be sacred and meant to show what Christ had done, and they had perverted it and turned it into what the culture does every day. And these that were sitting in the atrium were forced to watch those in the triclinium eat these large baskets of food while they had nothing but to eat the bread and the wine that was provided in the Lord's Supper meal. Now, what do you think that said to the world? What do you think it said to those Christians who were nothing more than poor freedmen, some of them slaves, but had come to know Christ and been brought into the church only to find the same practices that were out in the world going on in the body? I think what it said to the world and what it said to those believers is, well, the church is no different than the culture. There's no, there's no difference here. The church looks just like what I've seen out there. And the question I want you to ask yourself today is if someone from the outside were to look in at us, someone who has nothing to do with Christ, they're not a Christian, they're just watching from the outside, they're curious, maybe they're skeptical, but they watch this thing, and, and if they were to watch us, what would they say about us? Would they say that we look like Christ? Or would they say that we look just like the culture? Why would I need that? If someone were to look not only at us as a faith family, but if someone were to look at your life, if someone were to watch you, would they say of you, you look like Christ? Or would they say, I see nothing different in you? You are the same as Everyone else. That's the question I want you to to have in your mind. Two questions there, both a personal introspective look and then a corporate introspective look at ourselves. Well, let's let's look at this passage now that you have some background. You'll hear these phrases. You'll you'll have a better understanding as we read this. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, begin with me as I read starting in verse 17. The Bible says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. I would just pause right there and say to you that there are churches that are meeting, that are coming together all over this land, that their coming together is not a good thing, because they're coming together not for the better, but for the worse. I've heard it said, well, you know, at least they're in church. At least they're going somewhere. As long as you're going somewhere to church. And, and that is a, in, in some ways, true statement, but it is a very dangerous statement. It's not just that someone goes somewhere. It's that they go somewhere where a body gathers together around what's going to make them better. We sang this morning, beautiful words, wonderful words of life. Churches that are not gathered around the Word of God, the Word of life, who is Christ, are not gathering. They're not coming together for the better, but for the worse. So a church that simply puts the name on a billboard does not say that they are good. The measure of their quality comes in what they gather around. He says you don't come together for better but for worse. In verse 18 he says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. 
When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This morning, I want to show you a few things in this. First of all, I want to show you in this passage, when the church looks like the culture, here are some things. When the church looks like Christ, here are some things. And then at the end, I want us to take a look in the mirror. Okay, so first off, when the church looks like the culture, number one, it is divided. It's divided. That's what he says there in verse 18 when he says, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. Then he goes on in verse 19 and he says, I believe it in part because there must be some factions in order for those who are genuine to be able to be recognizable among you. This is the reality of the already but the not yet. We are already saved. The kingdom has already come to those who've trusted Christ But we await a kingdom to come from heaven, to be joined together with a new earth, to live forever with Christ in his presence. So we're already saved, but we're not yet what we will be. And so churches in this already not yet state, there's going to be some among us who are genuine believers, and there's going to be some among us who meet with us, who even make it onto the membership roles, who are not genuine believers. We can't see the heart. We, we can't open a door and look inside and say, yes, Jesus has written on that heart. His name is there. He's claimed it. We can't see that. And so we do the best that we can to guard the purity of the church by receiving only those who are trusting in Christ. But there will be some that will come in among us who are not saved. And what will happen is, is that over the course of time, as we live as believers among unbelievers in the context of this family, those who are not truly believers, will the, the character will begin to show, and they will show themselves as not truly being believers. 
They will not have a love for the family like that that is produced in the heart of a believer. They will not have a desire to to obey God. They will not have pure motives. And this is what causes some factions at times, some divisive arguments at times. And that will happen, he says. But it's not the main crux of the argument. He's not concerned about that type of division. What he is concerned about is the division that exists among genuine believers. That even among those who have genuinely been saved, remember I've said all through this series that he continues to refer to them as brothers, as sisters. That he affirms that they have been saved. And when a genuine believer is at odds and divided with another genuine believer, it tells a lie about the nature of God. And so he's concerned about this. And in this class-conscious society, the church would have been made up of these self-proclaimed dignitaries, the cream of the crop, the elite of society, as well as these poor freedmen, even slaves, and every class in between. They would have all been brought together in this new reality that the culture around them would have said, that's weird. That doesn't, that doesn't make sense. And so the flesh that's, that's in them, this, this leftover residual pulling toward away from God, would say, you're, you're, you're right. This doesn't make sense. It, it, it pulls me to look out for my own. And so there's division there. And Paul says, this should not be. We must war against this. In the same way, we, in this place, we all come from different places. Every one of us, we we grew up differently. Some of us grew up with plenty. Some of us grew up poor. Some of us know quite a bit about the Bible. And others, you're brand new to this thing. You You don't know really much of anything. Some have long histories here at Abner Creek. And others, you've only been here a little while. Some are college graduates or graduating at other other levels of degrees past college. And some in this room never finished high school. Some are are married. Others are divorced. Some have kids and some don't. Some are young. Others are old. Some like hymns on a piano. Others like a more modern rock and roll style of music as we gather together. And if we wanted to, we could continue this list and we could point out all the things that make us different. That yes, we come together in Christ, but, but hey, this makes us different. And we, would, we could allow those things to divide us and keep us separate. Or we could say that the cross levels it all. That it should not be this way in church. This is what Paul argued for in the very front of this book in chapter 1, verse 10, when he said, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. See, we could let these things divide us or we could take this approach of, I will not let this come between my brother and I. I will come to the place where I say, not what I want, but I will serve them. This, when, when the church looks like the culture, it becomes divided. Can't, couldn't we honestly say that the culture celebrates division? Secondly, when the church looks like the culture, it is selfish. 
It's all about me. And this is what he means in verse 21 when he says, For in, in eating, when you come together for these meals that you've taken beyond what was commanded, when you come together, each one goes ahead with his own meal. I mean, some, some commentators think this means that they, they, this elite group gathered ahead of time, had their meal together before those that are, they saw as lower than them could get there. But probably that's not what happened. Probably what's going on here, this word means more to devour. Probably to devour in the presence of. So they were coming together, people of all different socioeconomic status, and they were all coming together in the church, and instead of embracing one another, coming together and sharing what they had, instead they were devouring what they brought in the presence of these who had nothing. Weren't you taught in kindergarten that if you don't have enough to share with everybody, you just don't need to bring it? Weren't you taught that? How audacious, how crass, how insensitive it was for these Corinthian believers to eat their privileged portion in front of their brothers and sisters who had nothing and to do so with an air of superiority. When the world, when the church looks like the culture, it is Selfish. One commentator wrote that the Roman context, in that Roman context, the banquet becomes a theater of wealth and property, of social distinction or social climbing. This is what was going on. This was, this was TMZ. This was the paparazzi. This is what they had before those things. And they were looking at these, they were holding these banquets as a theater, as a way of entertaining. This was the great Gatsby. This was elaborate so that we could show off. So that I could elevate myself. And we could understand this going on in the culture. But this is the church. These are the people of God. Let me just say this. If you ever want to know just how selfish the world can be, just go school supply shopping on tax-free weekend at the Dorman Center Walmart uh, like I did this past Friday night. I don't know why they cram all those school supplies into about three aisles. People were on top of one another. People were, I mean, just everywhere, kids just eating in the middle of the aisle. I was getting so frustrated and mad. This one woman, she just came and stood right in front of where I was trying to get. I was angry. I was getting just outraged. I finally just walked away. I looked at Lana and said, I got to get out of here. I'm I'm, I'm gone. I went and found something else. I made my way back. And here was this same woman when I came back that had cut me off two or three times. And I knew that I needed to leave the, the property when I physically reached out and put my hand on her buggy to let another woman go through. <laughs> the sad thing, though, is I got out and I realized that it wasn't just those people being selfish. But in that moment, I was being selfish. If you want to know what selfishness looks like, oftentimes we just have to look in the mirror. When the, culture, when the church looks like the culture, it gets selfish. This is Philippians. Paul writes to the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 27, and he encourages them. He says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He says, 
put down this selfishness and treat others as better than yourself. In fact, that's what he says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And Paul, in this passage, is so disgusted at what's going on in this Corinthian church that when he looks at this meal that they are having, he says, you can't even call this the Lord's Supper. He says, it's not the Lord's Supper that you're celebrating. And he does that and then launches into reciting the actual event of Jesus gathering with his disciples on that last night to remind them and to contrast what Jesus actually did. They had, he had laid out for them, you are divided and you are selfish, you're not coming together for the better but for the worse. He had laid out that black fabric of their lives, of their existence of coming together, and then he said, let me just now put the diamond of Christ right on top of that and show you the contrast between you and him. Verses 23 through 26, we know it, this is the most familiar passage where Jesus takes the bread breaks the bread. This is my body for you. This is the cup, the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. This is the section that we know. And I I want you to see in this just a little bit of what's going on. That when the church looks like the culture, it is divided and it is selfish. But when the church looks like Christ, it is cross-oriented. It is Everything, everything is going to the cross or coming from the cross. Jesus, on that night, when he's in that upper room with his disciples, and he breaks this bread and pours this cup, he knows in that moment that he would be betrayed. He knew in that moment that he was going to be abandoned. He knew that he would be arrested. He knew that he would be beaten. He knew that he would be mocked and crucified. He knew all of it. Yet still in the hours before, he shows his commitment to go there. He's cross-oriented. He continues on toward the cross anyway. In fact, I did a little, little just walk through the book of John as I prepared this. And you can trace Jesus knowing this ahead of time in the book of John. In John chapter 2, verse 4, at the wedding in Cana... When, when the wine ran out and, and, and Mary came to him, Jesus said, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. The hour Jesus talks about at the very first public miracle that he ever performs is the hour of the cross. In chapter 7, verse 30 of the book of John, he says, the, the, book, the Bible says, They were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John chapter 12, 23 through 24, Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Why do you think he tells that? He knows this is the hour for which he has come. He's the grain of wheat that's going to fall to the earth and die and bring about much fruit. John chapter 12, verse 27, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. 
John 17, verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Don't ever think that Jesus was caught off guard by the cross. Jesus knew where he was going. He knew why he came. And he set his face toward Jerusalem anyway. The Bible says that he set his face like a flint. He was determined to go there. When Peter steps in and says, Jesus, now hold on, you can't talk like this. Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. Because in that moment, Peter was trying to do exactly what Satan had done in the wilderness as when he came when Jesus was fasting. He was trying to distract him and deter him and keep him from going to the cross. If, they, if he could just get him off mission and get him away from the cross, then he would thwart the plans of God. Jesus said, I cannot walk away from this because this is what I have come for. Likewise, if we are to be like him, we must realize that there is no other way but the cross. We are no longer under the Mosaic covenant. For years, the Israelites tried to live under this Mosaic covenant, under the law of the Ten Commandments, trying to obey this, trying to fulfill this. And every year it brought them back to the temple to sacrifice because every year they broke the covenant. But we are no longer under this Mosaic covenant. We are under, as the Bible says here in chapter 11, a new covenant. A covenant where every bit of our sin has been atoned for, past, present, and future in Christ. We don't come in the way where we say, well, you know, the cross is nice and it's a good way to start, but now I'll go on to the more important things. We come by the cross and we come to walk in the cross for the rest of our lives. We look to the cross as the place where God forgave us, He made us righteous, and He will complete where, what He started. We must be cross-oriented, walking to it and walking from it just like Jesus did. Our worship should remind us that we're under this new covenant. When we come together, to use the language of this passage, we should be reminded of these things, that we are sinners in need of a Savior, and that sin can be atoned for and has been atoned for in Christ alone, that we'll never live up to it, that we'll never make it right, that I can do as much good as I possibly can in this world, and I will get to the end of my life, and I will stand before God, and, I will, and He will say to me, depart from me, I never knew you. Go out into the wrath. Or I can come through Christ and Him alone, and one day I will stand. After trusting, a lifetime of trusting in Christ and Him alone, I will stand before God, and God will say to me, Come, enter into your rest. There's one way to be received by God, and it is through Christ and Him alone. Worship that looks like Christ is cross-oriented. It should cause us to embrace the will of God regardless of what comes our way. Just like Jesus, for the rest of his life, for, for all of his life, said, whatever, whatever your will is. Father, if there's another way, let it come. But if not, your will be done. The same way that we should be willing to embrace God's will regardless of the cost. Matthew 16, verse 24, Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. John chapter 12, in that same passage I read earlier, says, Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone 
serves me, he must follow me. And where, and where I am, there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. If we're going to be people that look like Christ in this world, as individuals and corporately as a faith family, it will be that when we, when we say, God, you build your church. God, you do with my life what you want because this world's not my home. I'm not, I'm not permanently addressed here. I'm coming to the end where you will be and you will elevate me. You will set up the next world. God, use my life here however you want. This is what Jim Elliott said when, when he wrote in his diary before he was martyred um, in Ecuador, I believe, he says, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The church that looks like Christ is cross-oriented. Secondly, in this, the, the church that looks like Christ is others serving. It's the very opposite of their selfish behavior. This around the meal, they are looking out for only themselves. They are devouring their meals. They are letting other brothers and sisters sit out and have nothing while they serve themselves. And Paul quotes this here to show them, hey, here is how it should be different. Notice that in this passage, in verses 23 through 25, that even on the night when he was betrayed, he served them. Notice the language there. This is my body for you knowing in that room that all of them would flee, that they would all run away. Even then, he served them. Romans chapter 12, verse 10 says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. If we want to be a church that looks like Christ, it comes when we take the attitude of Christ, when we have this mind in us, and we say, I want to outdo my brother in showing honor. I want to serve him. I want to serve her. It's not about what I want. I want them to know Christ and to know him more. I want this community to to know Christ. I want there to be an awakening in our community and in our nation and in our world. I want the gospel to go so I will gladly lay my life down and, and say no to myself so that they might hear. Does this come naturally? No. The most natural thing in the world is for us to look out for our own needs, isn't it? You, you walk into the kitchen. Maybe this is just me confessing tonight but, uh, or this morning, but uh, we walk into the kitchen and there's one piece of cake left. There's four of us in that household. I want the piece of cake. Well, I won't eat it right now because if I eat it right now, they'll see me eating the cake. So I'll take the piece of cake and I'll hide it away. Now put it away, and then they'll just see the empty container, and they'll say, there must be no more cake. No more cake? Okay, no more cake. They go to bed, I get the cake out, eat the cake, right? I've not really done that, I promise you. It comes naturally to look out for our own wants and desires, doesn't it? So how do we do this? We do this by, number one, looking to the example of Christ and then choosing to obey in the power of Christ. It's, it, it's not easy. My daughter is trying to learn a new sport and trying to learn tennis. And I played tennis years ago. We were out the other day. We were trying to 
learn tennis again together, and, and um, she began to get frustrated. With it wasn't coming as quickly. It's not going to come quickly. It's going to come hard over time, and you'll get better as you go, but you've got to put in the work. I would not expect to be able to just sit down at a piano and just begin to play. It takes discipline, and it's no different as we follow Christ. We don't count on that work to save us, but after we are saved, trusting Christ alone, there are going to be some things that we must war for. We must discipline ourselves for. There's a reason why Paul compares the Christian life to to an athlete or to a soldier or to a farmer. We must work for this, but not in our own strength in his alone. Third is this. I'll hurry through this. When a church looks like Christ, it is not only cross-oriented, it is not only others serving, but it is eternity motivated. It is eternity motivated. That's what he says in verse 26 where he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's in that, you proclaim it until he comes, is a reminder to us that we're going to gather and keep gathering and keep gathering until he comes. And if we get weary, we can give up It doesn't change the fact that he's going to come, so we must not give up. We must say there's going to come a time when he's going to come. The sky will split and he will come. Therefore, we will continue to gather. We will continue to look for that day. We will continue to push one another on toward Christ. We will continue to go to this world until he comes because we know that his waiting is patient grace for those that have not yet believed. We see this in the life of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12 says this, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to who? Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, Endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We learn this from Jesus. That Jesus, do you realize that when he came, he was fully man? That there were tough times for him, knowing what he was going to. Yes, he never stopped being God. Don't lose sight of the fact that in that he was also fully man and dealt with and wrestled with the same emotional turmoil that you and I do at times. And he looked forward. He chose in that moment not to look at his circumstances, but to look beyond his circumstances to the joy that was set before him. And we've got to have that mindset as a, as a church. If we're going to look like Christ, we will in these days, when it seems like everything is spiraling out of control, We will say, the world's not out of control. The world is coming to an appointed end. Not a haphazard, casual accident of an end. But one that is designed and appointed. God is still on his throne. And we will live for that day. I'll end with this today. I told you I wanted you to see what the church looks like when it looks like the culture. It's divided, it's selfish. When the church looks like Christ, though, it is cross-oriented, it is others-serving, and it is eternity-motivated. But then lastly, I just want to ask you some questions so that you and I will take a look in the mirror. 
This is what he does in this last section of verses in 27 through 34. In 27, he says, Whoever eats the bread or or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Now, some have thought this to mean that if we come to a service where we're celebrating the Lord's Supper, and, you know, if if I've got any sin in my life, that I, I can't take the Lord's Supper that day. Well, if that was the truth, then nobody would ever take the Lord's Supper, right? The point of this is not to say, hmm, I haven't, li- I, haven't, I haven't lived it this week, so I'll hold off. See, that's a false gospel. That's a works-based salvation. That's you saying, when I, when I get it together and when I have a good week and I come in and we're doing this, then I'll celebrate. No, see, what they're coming together and doing is they're not, they're not looking at this like Jesus did. They're not coming together and saying, it is the cross. We celebrate the cross. We cling to the cross. We need the cross. And the cross, since I'm accepted by the cross, then I will serve my brothers and sisters. I will look out for their needs and not my own. Because there's coming a day when there is a world coming that I'm not in yet. But until then, I'll live for his glory. Instead, they're coming and saying, it's about me. If anybody's going to look out for me, it's going to be me. And so when they came to the Lord's Supper, they weren't seeing what's there. And what he means here is that we should examine ourselves to say, we're going to take the Lord's Supper today? I've had a bad week. I've harbored sin. I've I've lied. I've cheated. I've not loved God the way that I should. Oh, I need the cross. I need the cross. And in that moment when you come to the table and you take the bread and you say, this is his body broken for me. And when you take the cup, you take the cup and you drink it and you say, this is the blood of the new covenant. Thank you, Jesus. And you drink it in a manner that is fitting with the character of it. It's not coming and saying, I've been pretty good, therefore I think I'm okay. It's coming saying, I need Jesus. Thank you, God, for sending him for me. Verse 28, he says, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. I just want to ask you some questions as we close today. I want you to hear these questions, and I want you to let them sink in. I don't want you in these moments to hear these questions and say, boy, I hope they're listening over there. I don't want you elbowing someone when something comes up that you think they particularly need. If it helps you, if you need to, close your eyes, don't look around. Put your hands in your, in your, in your palms and put your, knees on your, uh, on your elbows on your knees and just hear Does your church membership, does your participation when we come together look more like the culture or more like Christ? Have you been treating the sacrifice of Christ as trivial? As good for a beginning, but you know, it's, I'm, I'm moving on to other things. Are you even now feeling the discipline of God? This is what was going on in this church. Some were getting sick. Some were even dying. And Paul says, 
God is allowing this. God is, God is using this to discipline you. Can't you see that what you're doing is wrong? Hear His grace in this. Hear His mercy in this. That He doesn't just condemn you on the spot. But as verse 32 says, when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. The discipline of God is mercy and grace. Are you even now feeling the discipline of God? If so, see God's grace in it. Repent. Ask Him to change your attitude and your actions. Have you viewed others in this faith family as beneath you in some way? Have you gone ahead of them and served your own needs and wants before them? Then repent. Stop. You say, I don't know how. I can't stop. You stop by looking to the example of Christ and following Him in the power of Christ. He not only gives you salvation, but He gives you the grace you need to repent. Ask God to help you see others as as His gifts to you. Do you know that across this room, when we do life together, when we come together, God has given us one another as gifts? And we should stop seeing one another as embarrassments. It's beneath us somehow. But instead, that we should invest in one another's lives and allow others to invest in us. Because none of us have this thing figured out. None of us have arrived. We need one another to push one another on toward Christ. Aren't there times in your life when you get so down and so just ready to quit and ready to throw in the towel? Have you ever been so glad that a brother or sister came along and said, can I pray with you? Can I, can, you want to just talk to me? When a brother or sister just shares with you a, an account of how they also went through that and how God was faithful to bring them through and that in itself is the grace of God through them to you to bring you forward. The Bible says that he who began a good work in you will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. And he uses us together in that process. My, my prayer is that you've heard these questions and you've heard them not with a, an, an air of arrogance, not with a condemning attitude from this pulpit, pointing fingers and yelling at you and telling you to get it right. What I hope is that you hear a pastor who knows that he desperately needs the cross. The pastor that desperately knows that I need to serve my brothers and sisters more and better than I do. That I need to look to eternity as motivation to keep living because I'm prone to be pulled away. And I know that you are as well. And as we come together, we're going to be prone at times to wander away from what's true and what's right. Don't hear me as this judgmental pastor preaching at you this morning. Hear me as pointing you to the grace of Christ. That this is what should happen when we come together. We should be reminded of our sinfulness and how much we need our Savior.
I want desperately, hear this as a pastor who desperately wants to pastor a church who increasingly through the years looks more and more and more like Christ than it does like the culture. Sound good? Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for your word. Wonderful words of life. God, in a familiar passage, God, I pray that you would show us the larger picture. That we would see what's there. God, that you would speak. That you would speak loudly, clearly. God, there may be some in this room who have never received you. That they've, they've never trusted you as Savior. Then God, today I pray that you'd be gracious. Open their eyes and draw them to yourself. God, there may be brothers and sisters in this room today, God, that have not treated one another well, that have not treated one another in a manner that is fitting of the character of Christ, God, today I pray that they would cast themselves on your grace and your mercy and that they would go to brothers and sisters, and God, that they would have fellowship restored at the foot of the cross. God, whatever it is, God, that you would have done today. God, I pray that you would do it. You don't need our permission. God, we beg you to be gracious in this place. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We want to give you a time to reflect and respond. As Ethan plays and and in just a minute or so encourages you to stand and sing with us, we want you to, in that time, be thinking about what God is calling you to Because a sermon is not complete when the pastor finishes and says amen. Says amen. The the sermon is complete when those who are his put into practice what's been said. So whatever God's called you to, be obedient today. If you need to talk to me, if there's something that you just need a pastor to, to help you walk through. I'll be sitting right down here on the front road. Love to walk with you through that, pray with you. Maybe talk beyond this time. If today you're here and you say, I've never trusted Christ, but today I need Christ. I know it. I'm, I'm a sinner and I have no hope without him. And I'd love to have you come to me. You don't come to me for that salvation. You come only as someone to help you. And what's the next step? I'd be glad to help you with that. Today, if you're here and you say, this is the church where God's called me to join, you want to join this church, feel free to come. If today there's a brother or sister across the room that you just love, and you've maybe not shown that love the way you should, but you you want to, then feel free to move across this, this place and go to a brother or sister, restore fellowship with them, pray with them. Maybe you want to come and kneel across the front and pray. How Whatever you sense God leading you to do, do it today. Let's worship God as we respond to the beautiful words of life. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.